Are you always procrastinating? Are you looking for a real connection? Do you find it harder to keep going? Do you feel like no one's there to really listen? Are you drowning in work? Are you always stressing about what to eat? Do you get too worried about your and your family's health? Do you find yourself grappling with peer pressure? Do you feel like you're being watched or judged all the time? Ask the experts only on Women Influencers Talk Show. A warm welcome to you, Manavi and Domestic Violence, a conversation, a deep conversation on Indus TV. I'm your host, Usha Changa, for this beautiful, interesting, and a thought-provoking conversation. With me, I have Navneet Bhalla and Ruchika Hira. Thank you so much. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. I think um, all of us being women here, I think it's uh, really, um, we all share the interest in particularly the conversation that we're going to have today. We, and for all the viewers here, I'm going to say we all experience, we experienced some sort of domestic violence in our life. It could be somebody who's hurting in our family. It could be somebody we know, a close friend, someone we love, or maybe it could be somebody who we don't know, but we've you know heard of it. So what can you do? How can you help out? If this is something that you wanna be part of, especially to create a safer community, what can you do? And that is gonna be the conversation that we're gonna be uh, having today. So today we're having Navneet and Ruchika, like I said. So Navneet is the executive director of Manavi. What is Manavi? Yes, check out the website, manavi.org. She actually has played interesting roles and I absolutely loved reading your biography. Social justice, immigration rights for a long time. And you've actually been an, an attorney in UK and you've actually helped out about 300 asylum seekers and probably more. It, the count probably is gone after a while. And you've been at Manavi about three to four years, I would say, helping out and uh, doing the best you can from a service perspective. So welcome to the show. And I'm really hoping to have a beautiful conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And Ruchika, as I can, Ruchika Hira, she's an attorney an associate at Damiano Law, and she's been focusing on family law, mediation, divorce, all kinds of immigration issues. There's so many issues that she's been focusing on, but she has on and off been part of Manavi for about 17, 18 years, and she's focused on legal right now, very um, um, totally focused on legal for about three to four years now, I would say. So a warm welcome, Rushika. To the show. Thank you for having me and inviting me. Yes, and I think um, we all are busy in our lives, but we made the time to be here because I think we have, we all have, you know, a vested interest in helping out to make a safer community. So, um, what is Manavi? Why are we talking about Manavi today? I'm going to go straight to you, Navneet. If you can give us some information on what is Manavi and what are the services they offer. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. Thank you. So, Manavi is the very first South Asian women's rights organization that was founded in the country back in 1985. And, and I want the listeners to know that back then, um, Manavi, the, the, the women, the six strong advocates and the women who founded the organization and the advocates who used to work, I hear stories that back then when they started, anytime they went out, they were referred to as homewreckers. So I want the, the listeners to know in the last 35 years, we have come a long way as an organization, but we still have a long way to go. So we're a South Asian domestic violence agency. Our mission is to address all forms of gender-based violence in the South Asian community. 
We provide a range of services, so we strive to address both the immediate needs of survivors on a daily basis, but at the same time, we also work towards establishing communities which are free from gender-based violence. So very briefly, the range of services we provide include culturally specific advocacy and linguistically appropriate services. We provide counseling, we provide support groups, we have legal clinics where you know we absolutely value the service and, and support that Rishika provides along with other attorneys, so we're thankful for that. And we also have a transitional home, which is one of our really valuable services called Ashiana. That was founded in 1997, and it's a rent-free facility where we accommodate and support survivors and children and provide all our services. We also provide transportation and court accompaniments um, along with that. That's a lot of information, Navni, that you shared, and I think we're going to dwell into most of uh, the information that you shared. Uh, my question was, when you said various forms of domestic violence, I'm going to focus on that. Can you let, let us know what does that mean? What are the various forms of domestic violence? So there... Is I think a lot of the time there's a perception. When you think of domestic violence, people immediately think of some kind of physical violence. Um, that's not the case. Physical violence is not the only type of domestic violence. Um, we have physical, we have emotional domestic, domestic violence, financial abuse, um, there's isolation, there's coercion, there's psychological. It's all rooted in power and control. So to be honest, any time uh, someone in an intimate relationship uses a pattern of behavior to exercise power and control over another, that is domestic violence and can take many forms. And one thing I didn't mention earlier, a really important service which I want um, the listeners to know about is our 24-hour hotline. We have a 24-hour hotline and the number is 732-435-1414. So anyone listening can reach us at any time. Awesome. And I'm going to definitely request you to share that hotline and uh, we'll also share that with everybody. And I think 24 hours hotline, that means you have many people who are manning these lines as well. Yes, we have many um, volunteers who are DVRT trained, which is domestic violence, uh, violence response team training. They're all trained and they staff the hotline. Yes. And there's a whole range of South Asian languages that we speak within between the advocates and the volunteers. I saw you speak five languages already. So that's really yes. that you guys do that. And um, it's commendable that you have volunteers manning these lines because um, a person who's calling the line obviously needs help, needs some kind mm -hmm. of support. So having um, a, kind a kind person on that line, 24 hours waiting for your call to make sure you're going to be safe is really commendable. And um, as we talked about the various um, forms of domestic violence, you got me thinking, um, you know, the survivors are going to want to reach out to your service. Absolutely something that they need. What are the barriers that you've seen that they may be facing? So there are a range of barriers that our survivors face. And because they're within a South Asian community, there are specific cultural barriers. So we have language access, that's a significant barrier. We have barriers such as immigration status. So for instance, if the survivor's immigration status is dependent upon their abuser, then the, the abuser can really use that as a tactic to say that they can be subjected to deportation, they can report them, um, if, or we've even had really horrendous situation, a particular case that I dealt with myself, where the survivor had false criminal charges filed against her just so that she could be deported. Um, and that was a tactic used. Um, and also, and I'm sure Ruchika can speak to this particular point more, which is that survivors find it very difficult to navigate the legal system. So that is a very significant barrier that we see where, you know, they're unfamiliar with the, with, and also I think 
the reason a lot of them may be unfamiliar is because we primarily, although not exclusively, we primarily serve the immigrant community. And uh, we see that many immigrant survivors are unfamiliar with the legal system in this country. So that's also a huge barrier and also financial um, security. They, they are very often dependent on their abuser for financial security. So that's also a barrier. So um, I think these are good points. And I think, Ruchika, you probably fall into these, um, you know, issues here. Can you share some of the issues that you have been able to help? So I'm thinking there could be a person who's probably having these barriers listening to you right now. How are you going to be able to help them? I think a lot of it to just you know, go back to the question, it's just it's fear of the unknown, um, fear of not knowing what is the next step to take and what's going to happen. Um, in that regard, um, all I can offer to the listeners is there is um, a support system out there. Uh, contact an organization like Monavi, who will then put you in touch with someone like me, who will talk to you and then explain to you what the process is and how what I can do or the court system can do to protect you, um, to alleviate some of the concerns that you have. So for just touching upon some of the examples, immigration, it's like you said, a lot of people are scared. You know, if I file for divorce, if I try to get a temporary restraining order and it doesn't go my way, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to have to go back to India or Pakistan or wherever it may be. Um, what about my children who are U.S. citizens? You know, what's going to happen to them? So each case is very different. Um, but because, you know, someone whose experience has dealt with these issues, there's always a way. Um, so we'll guide you, but you got to take that first step. Reach out to an organization like Monvi or again, calls call me. I will can put you up in touch with another attorney who's maybe locally um, closer to you. And then we'll answer those questions. There's a way for the court to provide you support. We can get you support. We can try to get you possession of the house, even immigration issues. We can navigate the process. So maybe you could possibly stay in the U.S. I mean, nobody should have to deal with domestic violence and be in a situation where they feel that they have no hope. And this is the best for them. So again, there's a lot of um, resources out there, but it, it's the fear of not knowing what it is. So conversations like this definitely educate. I think they empower um, individuals to reach out. Um, don't be scared. Each case is different. Um, and there are legal uh, measures in place to help all of these individuals in some capacity. So there could be people who may be hesitant. And I think that's probably painting a real situation and say, she may be sharing it with a friend of hers and say, you know, I'm going through this, right? I'm going through this domestic violence. And just because she wants some sympathy, compassion, a shoulder to weigh on, can her friend who or whoever confidant that she was sharing with, can they actually seek help in behalf of um, the friend? From a legal perspective, um, they can, in the sense that they can reach out to an attorney who can then guide them, who can then, they can communicate with their friend on what the next step may be. But sometimes, um, again, it's a very sensitive issue and each family is so different. Each uh, victim is very different. We don't know. Um, she may have just communicated to her confidant or friend in a certain capacity, but realistically, um, you know, what needs to be done is very dependent on that person and their comfort level. It takes sometimes a lot of time, um, a lot of, you know, uh, building of a rapport before that person can take the step because you don't know what the consequences of the actions are going to be. And that person has to be ready to take that step. Um, so I think that that person, that friend definitely needs to be there. Keep following up, reach out to an attorney, reach out to Manvi, and then we'll definitely convey the information, which they can pass along to their friend who's not maybe ready to call and make, take that first step. But, um, Again, I think that person has to be ready because um, sometimes it's not the easiest process. It needs to be done. You know, they need to get out of the situation and your friend may realize that, but the timing has to be right, um, just depending on all the factors. Right, and uh, maybe Navneet, I'm going to go to you, adding more to what Ruchika was saying, that a person may yeah. not be, they may be, you know, experiencing mm -hmm 
experiencing domestic violence, but they may not be ready to speak it out or ask for help. How do you help these kind of situations? And I'm thinking you guys definitely go through this. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a really important point. We take what's referred to as a survivor-centered approach, and which much like most, if not all, domestic violence agencies throughout the country. So at the end of the day, we are of the, the, the belief that survivor knows their situation best. And very often we've had situations absolutely where we've had a friend or a, a neighbor or a family member call us. Um, now, in those kind of situations, with all the best intentions, when they call us, we listen to them and we provide resources, but we don't get into discussing the facts or the specifics of the case with, with a third party. And there's two reasons for that. One is to maintain confidentiality, which is absolutely the, the core of our work. We want to maintain confidentiality um, of, you know, basically for the survivor's safety as well. And also, Sometimes, like you said, the survivors are not quite there yet. They're not ready. So our role is to ensure that we provide resources and tell the friend and the neighbors all the services that are available. And we've had also situations where the survivor calls us and it can take weeks to months before they get to the point of actually taking any action. We recognize that it's a journey. And that's why the counseling service that we provide is so crucial. So anyone listening who's thinking, I'm in this relationship, which you know is abusive, but I'm not happy. I want them to know that you can pick up the phone and call us and we take as much time as you need to get to the point where you feel you're ready to take action. We are there to listen, we are there to support you, and very often it does take a very long time for the survivor to take any concrete steps, and sometimes they don't want to take concrete action. Sometimes they just want someone at the other end to, to listen and provide emotional support. And, and that is, we tailor and customize our services to what the survivor wants to do. And which is why I come back to that survivor-centered approach. And you know, uh, anyone listening, I just want you to know that we are here to support you and believe you um, and provide service as you see fit. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. And I think you are, you. Uh, very well said that, you know, the survivor-centric approach, because from our culture, and I think coming from our um, Indian culture, I would say South Asian as well, as generic as possible, South Asian culture, there's a few things that we've grown up with. You know, there's a few domestic, unfortunately, a few forms of domestic violence, which our parents, our grandparents, like my mother or my grandmother, have kind of accepted because they kind of saw that. So helping the daughter, and the, in this case, it could be a daughter recognizing that the mom is going through it, helping the daughter understand what the domestic violence is, but maybe she needs to stay for the mom or maybe get some counseling services for mom so mom can be a little stronger, maybe communicating, I guess, and may not need to leave, but communicating and saying that I do not like to be, you know, um, and whatever the situation is. I think that's a, one of the softest forms of counseling that Manavi provides. So anybody, you know, that's watching the show, if you see somebody who needs that kind of help, do not hesitate. Please seek out help and make sure that you're taking care of that and creating a safer community for all the women, or I guess, like you said, gender-based violence, you know, making sure that's there. So we'll um, carry on with our conversation. I know you talked about Ashiana. I love that name because it actually gives that, you know, safe refuge for people. Can you share a little more information as to what Ashiana is and who will actually, what are the requirements as you filter through the request and say, this person needs to be in Ashiana? So we have a fantastic Ashiana team. 
uh, who do a phenomenal job. Um, and basically the way it works is we, we can have up to nine survivors at a time um, and, and, you know, and children, but not, I think it goes by capacity. So nine survivors at a time, it's a communal home, a communal model. And basically it's a shared facility. It's a rent-free facility. Anyone who's interested and needs a home, we do what's called an intake process. So our staff or our Shiana team would sit down with them. They would do the intake. They would talk to them. Um, to be honest, we don't have rigid requirements. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to ensure that if there is space, if there is capacity, and we can accommodate the survivor and the child. After doing an intake, we assess whether or not we can accommodate. Now, there are a couple of factors which are really important to, to point out. We are not a shelter. There is a clear distinction, and very often people get that confused. A shelter is where you know people kind of, it's a supervised facility. Ashiana is not a supervised facility. We have our staff who go in practically every day or regularly, and the, another distinction is shelter is where you get to stay on an emergency basis for short term. So people can go in overnight, but then stay for a few weeks and then they have to leave. The wonderful thing about Ashiana is that we take a long term approach as a transitional home. So anyone coming in can stay anywhere from six months up to a year and a half. And sometimes we even exercise discretion in cases to prolong that based on things like, you know, what kind of services do they need? We provide what's called holistic services. So we'll provide economic empowerment, we'll help them with their job skills, we'll help them with any educational piece, we'll provide all the day-to-day -day groceries, culturally specific groceries, um, childcare, transportation, all the other services that everyone else gets. And our goal is that anyone who walks into Ashiana they only exit when they are fully empowered and, and they feel fully supported to, to integrate um, and you know, basically start th their life in a fully empowered manner. That is just a beautiful thing because I think just giving shelter, right? Just giving food and shelter, many places can do that, but making sure that this person can walk out more confident to live in that world that they're walking out into is a beautiful thought. So thank you. And I think you said nine people at this time. Are there any um, room for growth? What are your um, chances of moving it to more people? Absolutely. It's a conversation we have all the time, especially because Ashiana is the only South Asian culturally specific transitional home of its type on the East Coast. So it really is a, a very valuable service that we provide. Various factors play into it. Funding is absolutely a, a recurring theme. And, uh, you know, as always, we, we get funding from state and federal grants, but we also get funding from the community. So Anyone at any time listening now, or if you know others, they are interested in supporting our cause, I urge you to think about, you know, providing support for survivors through Manavi. But yes, the long-term plan for us would be, and a lot of it is dependent on um, state and federal grants. Awesome. And I think, uh, again, a request to all our viewers uh, watching this show, if you have the heart to help out, maybe one more survivor, right? And uh, from a finance perspective, if you're able to help out Manavi to actually increase that from nine to 10, why not? You know, let's try to do our best is what I'm going to say. And you, you were talking about people, you know, the volunteers coming in, helping out, you know, taking care of the place. We're talking COVID now. We're in 2020, a crazy year right now. How is this all panning out for you guys because it's a shared shelter as well. So how's COVID impacting? What are you doing for it? So yes, you're absolutely right. And you know, at the best of times, it's very, very difficult for survivors um, to get support and they feel isolated. And if we can all just imagine what it must be like for a survivor to be in quarantine with their abuser. Mm -hmm. um, so like many of the domestic violence agencies, our work absolutely has been impacted. But I think I am 
happy to share that we have a very dedicated team of staff and volunteers alike where none of our services have been impacted since the quarantine began. The only thing that's changed is that we have moved all our services um, on remote platform. So since March, without interruption, our 24-hour hotline has continued. Um, I myself have stepped in, we've all stepped in. It has, there has been no interruption. We have continued to provide um, counseling and advocacy remotely. We've all been taking phone shifts. We have provided support groups remotely for Ashiana specifically um, groceries, not just Ashiana, in fact, any survivor that has needed help with groceries. And that honestly has been one of the biggest challenges during COVID. We've had Ashiana survivors, but also survivors outside of Ashiana where providing regular groceries has been a huge challenge, but we have managed to Thanks to funds from the community, donations, volunteers stepping up, delivering, other agencies, collaborating. Basically, it was a collaborative effort. We've continued the groceries as well. And all our services, legal clinics have continued, no interruption. So we've had that continue. Legal advocacy has continued. Uh, we've continued to provide transportation. So all our services have continued. The difference is it's been done, it has been done remotely. And situations in Ashiana where it has warranted an in-person visit, we have ensured we've arranged that. And I don't know if Richika agrees, but I actually feel that the one lesson maybe we've all learned during COVID um, is to ensure that, that we stay connected. And I have found in the last two months that I am more connected, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I have more access to people who I didn't have access to. And just to give you an example, we were on a Zoom call with 200 people with the commissioner of Department of Children and Families. And I share that because I wouldn't, as an ED of one culturally specific agency, have access to her. But because I was on a call and they said, anyone have concerns or questions? I jumped right in and I said, we need funding for childcare. We, and guess what? I said that within 48 hours, I got a call and the, somebody in New Jersey, well, DCF in New Jersey said, the commissioner said that Manavi raises concern and they provided funding for childcare and that survivor was able to go back to work because childcare funding was, because we were running out. You know, we were running out. And I share this story to say that in some ways, I feel we've had more um, connectivity and access to, to people who, you know, and, and the Attorney General, and because Zoom has a way of connecting us to people with influence and, and funding where we don't always have a direct line. So that was a fascinating result for us where that survivor was able to get that and they were able to get back to work. Yeah. That's really that's really good and i think i'm going to go to ruchika as well from a COVID perspective how has this been affecting you impacting you to work with the survivors like this sochcast tune in for more with the sochcast app from the google play store in regards to COVID, i mean initially when COVID happened when all this was taking place in march um things were actually very challenging courts were closed Municipal courts were closed. It was difficult to get a client to, you know, have immediate access to getting a temporary restraining order. And then obviously a, a final restraining order hearing um, till this day are pushed out months. So I think one of the biggest challenges we're the seeing and as from a legal perspective is um, getting clients the relief that they need um, quickly. Um, judges are still working from home. Um, now the courts have opened up a little bit, but everything is via Zoom or Microsoft Team. Um, temporary restraining orders where before they would be amended in person. Now you have to wait, somebody will call you, it's being done virtually. So in some aspects, it's, um, it's good because our victims are not having to go to the courthouse and they're being contacted and everything can be done remotely, but there's a huge lag. Um, you know, final restraining order hearings that should have taken place within a short period of time um, are now taking place months out. Um, if you need to amend a TRO to basically get child support or, you know, any other concern regarding custody or parenting time, it's just, it's a different process. Um, the judges are getting used to it. It's getting better. We're starting to get into the swing of things, but it's definitely been a period of adjustment. Um, 
I wouldn't say that it's been the easiest thing, but we're all kind of getting there. We're getting into the swing of things. It's not stopping anybody from getting um, a restraining order. Um, it's not stopping anybody from getting the support that they need. It's just taking a little bit longer and we're just navigating a little bit differently. I think, um, like Navneet was saying, you know, stuck in quarantine, some of your doubts about, you know, the person or, you know, uh, abuse or domestic violence has become pretty big now with quarantine. So can they um, get like a separation? I know you said everything's taking longer, but, you know, the separation and then um, also maybe, you know, if they're considering divorce and all that kind of stuff, is that like taking a back burner? Restraining order, I would say, yes, definitely. You know, they'll probably look at it. But is is a divorce and, uh, you know, separation taking a back burner? Um, so I have been probably busier than I've ever been <laughs> um, because in light of COVID, maybe people are realizing that, you know, this situation is actually not working. So oh, man. I have been I have been extremely busy. Um, no, it's not stopping anybody I'm doing it. Um, but we're using a lot of different resources now where instead of maybe filing a motion with the court to get certain relief, we're taking cases to mediation. We're taking them to arbitration um, to move the cases along. Attorneys are working more with each other to kind of gain the momentum. I mean, I'll give you an example. I have a case that was filed a while ago. Um, Essex County still hasn't even done anything on that case. Oh my but gosh. I'm almost, at the, I'm almost at the end because between the attorneys, we've just moved it along. And each case is different, you know? I mean, if we can, we are doing whatever we can to help these parties um, move forward. So it, it's a different, definitely a creative approach. Um, mm -hmm. And again, a lot of arbitrators are stepping in um, to mediate and people are even offering, you know, lower price services um, to help in light of everything that's going on. So um, if, you know, two people can't resolve their issues at some point, then yeah, the trial's gonna be like five years from now probably. But for the average person, or even the more, um, a case that does require certain specific um, nuances and issues, we have the ability to navigate it and get you um, to that next phase of your life for sure. Wow, yeah, and I think like we say 2020, it's really clear. The clarity in your life, in your relationship, is becoming clear as well as you spend a lot of time indoors, you know, locked with that person. Do you have a question? I'm trying to understand the difference between a final restraining order and a consent restraining order with a civil restraint. I was reading on it. I don't really understand what the difference of these two restraining orders are. Sure. So um, when a victim initially goes and gets a temporary rest a restraining order, it's a temporary restraining order for a short period of time. Um, those they're, they're temporary restraints. Um, ultimately, the next step would be to convert those temporary restraints into final restraints. So a person, after getting the temporary restraining order, will decide, okay, am I going to move forward and get a final restraining order, which is sort of, um, you can say, a trial. It isn't sort of a trial. It is a, a trial. Um, and at that point, the judge will decide, does this individual um, get those final relief? Um, one of the other options is to enter into what's called a consent order with civil restraints. Um, so after a TRO, a person can say, okay, look, I'm, I'm possibly in the process of getting a divorce. Um, we're going to separate. I don't necessarily need the protective measures of a final restraining order. Let me enter into something that's called a consent order with civil restraints. Now, the difference is, is that a consent order um, with civil restraints is exactly that. The restraints are in, it's, the relief is in civil part. So okay. to give you an example of something that may be in the consent order with civil restraints, it may say that you know neither party is to um, go to the other individual's home. You know, some, that, that's very simple. Um, but if one person violates that aspect of the consent order, the relief that they're gonna get is in family part. You will have to file a motion with the judge and say, oh, hey, look, our consent order with civil restraint said that you know my husband wasn't supposed to come to my house. He showed up at my door. There should be some kind of consequences. And the consequences are civil in nature, uh, maybe monetary. There'll be another order entered that if you do this again, this is what the consequences are gonna be. Compare that to a final restraining order, which is going to also prohibit um, 
in this case, the abuser for coming to the victim's house, um, if that abuser now violates the final restraining order, there are criminal sanctions, even possibly jail time. So the relief are very different. So if one person feels that they need the protective measures of you know, security in the sense that, okay, my, the abusers outside my house right now, they have the ability with a final restraining order to call the police, the police will come and they will arrest that individual. If you have a consent order with civil restraints, um, the only thing you can really do is call the police, they will get an incident report. And at that point, you would have to file an application with a judge sitting in family part under what's called the FD docket or the FM docket. And then that judge, you have to wait for that judge to do something. Um, that's just one of the main differences um, between the two. And another thing is um, if one person just does know again um, that they're about to get a divorce or they're going to separate, a consent order with civil restraints can address various issues in far more detail regarding child support, alimony, who's gonna to continue to pay the mortgage, the bills on the house, who's getting possession of the house, what's the parenting time schedule gonna be. Those are all things that can be detailed um, in a consent order with civil restraints in a different manner than an FRO, where a judge would essentially be able to order at least temporary child support and address certain financial issues. Um, but again, if you have the right attorney um, helping you with the consent order with civil restraints, that could be a very powerful tool towards that next step. Wow, that's really interesting. And I think um, it'll save people as well, you know, with um, the restraining order and having the right kind of restraining order from a timing perspective as well. And, um, you know, Ruchika can help you viewers if you're listening and thinking of getting a restraining, restraining order, um, God help you because you're in that situation. But Ruchika can also sit down with you and uh, help you understand which restraining order is going to be best for your situation. Talking about South Asian community and most of the time, like I said, when we started, it's our culture as well. Some of the domestic violence, we, we kind of unfortunately accepted because you know we saw that happen like even I still remember in my childhood if I saw a man abusing a woman on the streets I just watched I felt bad for the woman but I just watched I didn't really do anything because I thought unfortunately that's what's happening in the situation but come Bollywood come 2019 I've seen a lot of changes right even now we saw the Me Too uh, movement that happened. And then there was a recent movie, um, Tuppard, where they talked about a slap, right? It was a slap in public. Um, what, what are your thoughts on uh, these kind of um, movements? I feel like we're getting a little more open about, you know, what is, and I think going back to that definition, what is abuse? What is verbal abuse? What's physical abuse? What is violence? What are your thoughts? I'm going to go to each one of you. So I'll start with you, Navneet. Let us know what your thoughts are on uh, the Me Too um, movement or even Bollywood sharing some of the um, various uh, ways of abuse. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Me Too movement too. So there's domestic violence and there's sexual violence. So sexual violence is something also that's not talked about enough within our community and especially the whole concept of consent. So I think it's really important that from a very early age within our community, whether it's with our children, with our family members, um, you know, any kind of setting to create a safe space to start having these conversations about what is a healthy relationship. I think that, that in itself is a very empowering and, and much needed conversation. I, I have a eight-year-old son and 13-year-old daughter, and I think I might have shared this with Richika in the past maybe, but I remember my daughter coming home one day from school and she said, oh, we had a conversation about consent. She's 13 and it was last year, so she was 12. So she told me that, and then my son became curious and said, what does that mean? And I didn't, I had two choices. I could either engage or just say, oh, you're too young. This is not something that you need to know. And I think this is just one example of, of many situations, um, whether you're sitting with your child, your parent, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law. So we had a very 
engage in conversation. And, and one of the things that came up was when he's eight, remember, and he actually said this, I think it was last year, yeah, said, oh, so, you know, if I can, if I like a girl or, and I want to hold her hand and if I want, so we talked about what consent means. You shouldn't assume that you can just go ahead and do whatever you, based upon your feelings. Maybe the other party, the other, you know, the girl in this case, doesn't feel the same way. And where is it that it com comes in? You know, the whole concept of what healthy relationships look like. And, and my daughter had a good conversation um, with our son as brother and sister. So I think, and I actually, and there's a really um, interesting video, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's um, called, um, oh gosh, it's like a teacup. They, they talk about consent um, and the definition of like ha having a cup of tea and it explains it. But to round it off, the point that I'm really making is it's important that very early on, we create a safe space, whether it's at the dinner table, in our places of worship, talking about healthy relationships, what they mean, even in schools and what consent means. And also talking about abuse is not something that has to be dealt with privately a lot of the time in our community it's this is a private matter you know you need to not don't don't bring shame on yourself or on, on the community all these things are outdated and all these things are um frankly ignorant too it's we we as a community need to step up and start having conversations more openly that, that we need to address it together as a community. It shouldn't be taboo. It shouldn't be, there shouldn't be stigma attached to it. There is nothing about staying in a abusive marriage where people talk, talk about the sanctity of marriage. There is no such thing if you're in an abusive relationship. And the only other thing I'm going to end on is there's a very classic term that's always used uh, in, in South Asian culture when women are getting married. You should learn to adjust. You need to learn to adjust. The, the, uh, the whole word, the term adjust gets stretched really broadly where no matter what's going on, you just need to adjust with your in-laws. You need to adjust with your husband. You need to adjust with your brother-in-law. You don't need to adjust to abuse. No right. one should. And, and the one final piece is that to live a life free of violence is actually a fundamental human rights issue. So we're not even talking about abuse and we're talking about it purely from a human rights perspective. Every international human rights law um, has it now that we all have a life, you know, a right to live free of violence. Hence, historically, um, women, there have been men survivors too, and we serve them too, but historically and statistically, women are expected to basically accept abuse under the, the term adjusting. Very well said. I think that adjust word is something that we've all heard. Yes, I've heard it too many times with other family members and neighbors. So it kind of <laughs> irks me because <laughs> yeah. it's really another word of saying just, you know, deal I, with it. Yes. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. So I'm going to go to Ruchika now. I want to I want to ask you to shed some legal light as well, and what you think. Even from a, I don't know if you have watched the movie Tuppered, um, Ruchika, but I have, I have. Okay, so if you can give us, you know, um, just connecting it, you know, from a legal aspect as well. Was that physical abuse? How do you see it from a legal aspect? And then even the Me Too, um, women tend to go through that quite a bit, you know, and um, people, oh, he, he was just kidding. He was drunk, right? He just, you know, was drunk and he didn't think about it. Shh, ignore him. Shh, don't go make a case of it, right? That's what we hear. So I just wanted to hear from you from a legal aspect as well. What can, does a woman need to protect herself legally? And if she has to, do you, what do you think she can do? I mean, first and foremost, I think the movie was amazing. Um, any of the listeners who haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. And um, the movie was so powerful in the sense that it really touches upon how domestic violence is so different um, for each person. Like that same incident, that same slap 
can have a different effect on one person versus a, a, another woman. And the key, um, and I love this movie, is because um, I got into a dialogue with my mother-in-law, who was the one who told me to watch the movie. And she <laughs> said, you know, and, and we were talking, and she's like, you know, it was just one tapar, it was just one slap. But it was like, it's not just one slap, right? Because look at the impact that that one slap had on her emotionally, psychologically, her self-esteem, her confidence. So again, you know, going back to domestic violence, I had a client once and she grew up in a household where, um, you know, her parents never cursed. They never, um, you know, engaged in that type of vulgarity, any that type of um, uh, dialogue. So when she got married and um, her husband, you know, used certain words, um, the impact that those words had on her were far different than that, the impact it would have on me. Somebody who in my, you know, everyday course, like I'm just exposed to so many, so many obscene words, vulgarities. So if somebody was to say that to me, it's like nothing, you know, but to her, it emotionally struck her, it destroyed her, um, it caused her mental anguish. And in that particular case, um, you know, it was a form of harassment and we were able to get a restraining order demonstrating, again, this one word, which is used very commonly um, nowadays for her, the impact did rise to the level that she needed a restraining order and it was harassment. So I guess to the listeners, um, again, going back to the movie, um, you have to see what that incident and how it impacts you. Um, it's not about one slap. It's not about one you know, curse word. It's not about, you know, somebody controlling the finances and not giving you access um, to a bank account or a credit card. It's collectively, how is that making you feel? Um, and that's the key. So anybody who's out there thinking, you know what, oh no, it's nothing, you know, I'm not going through domestic violence. Well, if it's making you feel a certain way, then maybe reach out because, um, you know, again, we're there to help, we're there to guide you. And maybe it does rise to something more than what you may Think. And as you can see from the movie, it wasn't that easy for her to get to that point. Um, you know, there was a lot that was going on and a lot that people didn't understand. I definitely think it stirred a dialogue amongst like a lot of other women in the community. Um, so I think it's great. I think culturally we think, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, domestic violence or hitting or cursing is acceptable. Um, it's not acceptable, it's really just not. And I think the more and more women um, realize that it's not so taboo to talk about it, even you know amongst each other, I think the more and more we'll be empowered to help somebody or to do something about it. So I think it's important that we kind of say, you know, it's not okay um, and let's just talk, even if it's amongst a, a group of friends. Um, and another thing that I do want to shed some light on is one of the big things that I see over over again in my cases that deal with South Asian women is um, marital rape, quite frankly. Um, people assume that just because you're married, it is okay for a husband to force themselves upon you. It's your duty. You have to engage in sex. But you know what? No, you don't. If you don't want to and you say no, then the answer is no. So again, just to the listeners who are maybe feeling like, you know, oh, it's, you know, part of my job, I'm married, you know, he's in, you know, no, 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 no. It's supposed to be um, enjoyable for you as well. And if you're not comfortable, then voice it and just say what you have to say, because um, if they don't stop, um, you know, it's not okay. Um, it's not acceptable. And, and it, there is a term for it. It's called marital rape. Wow. Yeah, that's strong. And I think, um, you both are strong women, helping women, but get stronger and empowering. We're getting to the end, but I can't let you go with some last words for our viewers. So um, Ruchika, while we're talking to you, give us some last words for our viewers. I just want the listeners, and this is how I pretty much end every, um, every interview that I do, is that it is not easy to speak uh, about this stuff. It is not easy to confide in anybody. It's not easy to get help. Um, we recognize that. Um, so whenever you're ready, or if you feel that your safety is in jeopardy, you feel that your children's safety is in jeopardy, um, please just don't, you know, take that step. Just make the phone call um, either to Manvi. You can always reach out to me. Um, 
reach out to the police. I mean, they are there to help. Um, you can go, they'll take you to the police station. If you want to need a temporary restraining order, they will get it for you. They will guide you. And you can always decide later that you don't need the help, but please don't put yourself and your kids in a, in a situation um, where you feel that you may get hurt. Um, so I always end the same way saying that we are out there. We will help you. We will get you the relief that you need. Please don't be scared. And if nothing else, just, you know, talk to a friend or a family member about what you're going through. Don't be alone. Yeah, thank you, Ruchika. And um, Navneet Bala, if I can have some last words from you as well. Sure. So to anyone listening, just want to echo that you are not alone and we believe you. It's not your fault. And, you know, I think one of the, the key pieces here to know is that there are many, many survivors and many women who are going through the same thing and just to know that we are there so please pick up the phone we have a 24-hour hotline and we will support you all the way and you are the one that gets to decide what you want to do if even you want to take any steps we are simply there to provide that emotional support and strength and help you as you want us to help you. And then the other piece, anyone listening who knows of someone who may be in an abusive relationship, please take the time to be there for them. Tell them that you believe them. Tell them it's not their fault, but also take the time to do the research. You can be the person who can provide the resources to them to say this is what's available out there and, and just be present to support them. Thank you. Powerful words from Navneet and Ruchika. It's, you're not alone. And it's okay not to be okay. You're going through the situation. It's okay. But you can find help. And especially in the situation that you're going through, manavi.org. And the hotline, we're definitely going to be sharing the hotline with you as well. Please call. Please seek help. And as Navneet and Ruchika said, find help. If you need to talk, talk to someone and they'll definitely help you get help. So hoping that you all stay safe, you all stay healthy. And please, 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 if you need help, please seek out manavi.org. And for all the viewers who are listening, who are watching this, and you are actually, you know, looking at the work that these guys are doing, all are volunteers. It's a nonprofit organization. Everybody is volunteering their time, their sweat, and trying to get to create a safer community for the women. Please donate. Please donate and help out manavi.org. So with that, we're going to conclude the show, Manavi and Domestic Violence, a conversation with Navneet Bhalla and Ruchika Hira on Indus TV. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm really hoping we were able to help. If, if we were able to help one woman from this show, I think I'll really be happy. So thank you for taking your time. And a huge thanks to Indus TV and Vijay Garg for helping us get the show on his TV. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.